seen on her parents' piano in their house on St. Charles Avenue. A picture of her sitting on a wicker chair on their porch, with her arms around her knees and a completely happy smile on her face, which was rarely that completely happy. The sunlight was in her hair, shining also in the whites of her eyes, the moisture of her teeth, the little gold chain around her neck. My own voice was echoing, as I said no, over and over. And then I hit the off switch. I left the apartment without closing the door behind me and without a coat. The late snow that had been falling in Minnesota was now falling through the coarse gray darkness over Chicago. Somehow I seized on the idea that there was something I needed to decide, a course of action I needed to affirm. I don't honestly know what I was thinking. The truth is, most of my effort was probably spent fighting going mad. We were living on 51st and Blackstone. I was going to law school at the University of Chicago, and Sarah was working on the northwest side in a place called Resurrection House. We had few friends and virtually no money, so most of the time we had to spend together, we spent alone in the apartment. I was still strange to the streets I walked that night. The lights in the windows seemed sharp and unfriendly, and the families living on the ground floors, whose domesticity I could spy and brightly lit wedges, seemed remote, unknowable. From time to time I became aware of how cold it was. I looked up and saw the snow drifting past the streetlights, Sometimes my heart seemed not to be beating at all, and sometimes it seemed to be beating far, far too quickly. I made my way to 53rd Street and found a bar. I had a few dollars in my pocket, and I ordered a beer. I was supposed to be stopping drinking, and it didn't quite occur to me that this was a time I could back off that vow. The taste of the beer was too real, and its reality made the night undeniable. The bartender had a large, white, distorted face, unbelievably grotesque, like something underwater. There was one other person in the bar, a bus driver, sitting in front of what looked like a scotch and soda. There were framed photographs of famous boxers on the wall, that listless automatic decoration they use in bars without any real character. I had some change in my pocket, and I went to the phone booth. I was wet, shaking. I dropped the dime in and dialed our apartment and listened to the ringing. And with each ring I thought, my God, it really happened. Sarah and Gisela had been in the front seat and they were instantly dead. Probably they were each buried with shreds of the other in the casket. Francisco Higgins had been in the back seat lying down. They took what was left of him to the hospital where he died two days later. By this time I was in Minneapolis, too, and I visited his hospital room. He was small in that bed. The equipment was larger than he was. It was a cheerful room, Nordic and up-to-date, with little humanizing touches that were coming into vogue, warm colors on the wall, 
a child's crayon drawing framed, an orthopedically designed chair for visits. I really didn't know Higgins. I'd met him only once at dinner with Sarah and a few of the others the night before the trip to Minnesota. I'd liked him that evening. He was a sort of Chilean government in exile, but he had a way of not taking it so awfully seriously, or at least not rubbing your nose in the seriousness of it. I'd liked him then, but I did not like him in that hospital room. And as soon as I walked in, I realized it was wrong for me to be there. I started to shake, and I was having vile, desperate thoughts, my mind jerking this way and that like a snake tortured by a sharp stick. He had clearly been the object of the attack. His wife was a secondary target, and Sarah had just happened to be along for the ride. He'd been deliberately attacked, but in a sense Sarah's death had been accidental.